If you turn tonight to Hebrews chapter 8, and as I shared with you last time and really the time before, there are a number of statements found in the book of Hebrews about how better Jesus is than everything. Then I want to set the stage tonight this way. At the time the book of Hebrews was written, the most advanced, the most detailed, uh, the most uh, unbelievably complicated, the most complete religious system that quite frankly has ever been devised was Judaism. It was by far and away the most organized religion on the face of the earth. Uh, it had been at that point in time around for more than a thousand years. Now, at the time these words were written, there was in fact still a temple on the Temple Mount. This is prior, just shortly before A.D. 70 when it was destroyed. So as these words are being written, there's a very complex analogy that's being drawn between that which was the most organized religion on the face of the earth and that which is a relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God who formed you, the one who loves you, and the one who would come to provide for us what religion could never provide. Religion has never been able, nor will it ever be able, to rightly put man and God together. It can't do it. No matter how good it is, it always falls short. And so the point here in chapter 8, and we'll look at all of it tonight, is this now much better covenant that exists. You all know it is the new covenant. It's the covenant that is in Christ's blood, which was shed for the remission of sin. But the new covenant is infinitely better than the old covenant. The first thing that people will normally think on, as soon as you say that the new covenant's better than the old, then they almost always ask the question, well, what was the Old Testament? What was the Old Covenant? Why was it there in the first place? And we're going to answer that tonight. And so I pray that the Lord would speak to us through His Word. We'll be looking at all of chapter 8. And would you pray with me as we turn our attention to God's Word? Father God, as we now again open up Your Holy Word, Your infallible Word, Lord, the bread of life, we pray that you would rain down from heaven blessings upon us as your people. And Lord, strengthen us. Cause us to receive these words and to hear them and to know them. Lord, we pray, I pray, for those that are struggling, maybe with religion, with religious activity, with something other than Jesus being the way that they want to approach you. I pray that you'd set them free. I pray that you'd take us tonight, move in our lives in a special way. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Hebrews 8. Now, it doesn't get any plainer than this with biblical sentences. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. The writer of the book of Hebrews was addressing a Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience of the time, much like most people who are deeply enmeshed in religion today, sometimes need to be spoken to very directly. Now, don't read anything into it. 
This is not some type of hyperbole. This is not some hidden thing that I'm trying to say to you. This is not something hard to understand. The main point of the things we are saying is thus. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. This is the main point of the entire Bible. This really is the difference between religion and relationship. This is it. Mankind erects tabernacles and temples. Man builds up religious systems. Man, in all of his glory and splendor, insofar as we knew prior to the coming of Christ, had never really been engaged in anything that was any better than Judaism. It was it. It was the cream of the crop. It was the best there was. And it was implemented by God, but it was insufficient. And so the main point is, we now have an advocate. We now have a mediator. We now have direct access. The veil is torn. There is no longer a religious system that you can go to. There is a one who you can go to who brings you directly into the presence of God. You're no longer bound. You're set free. For every high priest, verse says, verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed both to offer gifts and sacrifices, and therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. In other words, the mediator of the new covenant must have also something to offer, because Scripture plainly declares, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Period. There never has been, and there still isn't. The good news is his blood was sufficient for all, once and for all, for all sin of all mankind for all time. And so Jesus could offer nothing better than himself. He did offer something. And it wasn't an animal. It wasn't a sacrifice that was sufficient for a time. It was the precious blood of the Lamb that was offered. Jesus offered himself. For if we were on earth... We would not be a priest, since there are priests to offer the gifts according to the law. You might notice here that this is in the present tense. It was speaking of the temple that exactly was available to them at the time. It was very visible. It was something they could go look at. It was there. But it says, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy, notice, who serve the copy, who serve the copy, not the real thing, the copy, the part that was never intended to solve the real problem, but the copy, who serve the copy, and the shadow of heavenly things. Now remember what was said. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. The high priests weren't serving in a way that was finished. It was a shadow. It was a copy. It was something that prefigured, brought men as close as you could get, showed you the general direction, but they could never seal the deal. Couldn't make it complete. The shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. 
But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So it's a better covenant established on better promises of which the original one was a copy and a shadow. So when people say to you, well, I think we still need to keep the Jewish law. We still probably ought to observe the feast days. And if we do that, we're actually more spiritual than if we're just Bible-believing Christians. You can say, no, that was all a shadow. That was all a copy. That was all a prefigurement. It was a picture, if you will. It was something that guided men for a period of time and eventually got to the place to where it became very clear that it was not sufficient to draw men all the way to God. Got you close, but it couldn't get you in. So the new mediator of the better covenant, which is established on better promises, for if that first covenant, notice this, had been faultless. Now I want you to draw a circle around that word faultless, because a lot of people look at that, aha, see I found an error in the Bible. See, the Old Testament wasn't, it's not faultless. It isn't what's being said. There was a fault with the Old Testament system. You know what it was? It's a three-letter word, begins with M, and ends with N, and has an A in the middle of it. Man. The fault was that it relied on man. Man had to keep his part of the covenant for the covenant to be in force. A covenant is agreement is an agreement between two parties. God kept his part of the covenant. He said, these are the laws, these are the things you must do. The problem was, man never kept his part. Matter of fact, man never got really close So the fault was not on God's part. The fault was on man's part. The first covenant, if it had been faultless, which it wasn't, then no place would have been sought for a second. In other words, there wouldn't be a need for a new covenant if the first covenant had worked. The problem was it was sufficient from God's perspective, but mankind never kept it. And in fact, one could say, mankind in his own flesh couldn't keep it. The system wasn't flawed. The one who was trying to keep the other side of the agreement was flawed. And that's you and me. It's always been that way. It's why we need grace. It's why I need God's mercy. If I were to rely on the law every day when I got up, oh, mercy me. Death awaits, to quote from Princess Bride. You know, it's just, it's just over. Might as well just cash in your chips. Wouldn't have had to have a new covenant. Verse 8. And I want you to notice from about the middle of this verse to the end of verse 12 is the longest Old Testament quotation found in the New Testament. It's from Jeremiah chapter 31. And of course, when those words were written, roughly 600 maybe as as late as 680 or so B.C., uh, this would have been a pretty strange thing to say. It would have been very tough for a Jew to hear. Because finding fault with them, and the them is people, by the way, finding fault with them, he says. You see, the problem was the people. Finding fault with them, God says, Behold, their days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. 
Now do you know what the Old Testament was saying about the coming of the Messiah? You see, the whole context was the Old Covenant couldn't do it. It wasn't sufficient. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Notice it says Judah and not Levi. With the house of Judah. That covenant will be made with the house of Judah. And, of course, Jesus himself from the lineage, the tribe of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because, notice this, they did not continue in my covenant. It wasn't my problem. The covenant was perfect. The covenant was exactly as it should be. The covenant itself was made by God. It couldn't be less than perfect. It was fine. But people, not so much. They did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. That word disregarded is a poor translation of the original Hebrew word translated here into Greek and then into English. It means that he did not account it against them. In other words, he looked at it and said, eh, that's just people. I expected that out of them. Even though the system was perfect, because he knows our hearts, just as he did with Adam and Eve, by the way, he gave Adam and Eve every opportunity to live a perfect life. He put them in a perfect environment with perfect conditions. He says, here's all you got to do. All you need to do is stay away from that one tree over there. And by the way, I'm going to put an angel over there so you can't get to it. But mankind being curious and God wanting genuine love from us. So he has to give us two choices. He can't give you one. That's not love, right? If I only give you one choice... And I say, you have to choose that choice. Did you ever choose? The answer is philosophically, absolutely not. I gave you no choice. A choice of one is not a choice at all. It's a mandate. In order for God to give us the ability to choose Him, He had to give us something to choose other than Him. So here is the option. He says this is perfect. You can keep that. Gives us the capacity to do it. But we don't. Here's the other thing you can choose. Because in making the choice to not choose that, you're saying you love me. But if you simply do what I tell you to do, then I forced you to love me, and thereby it's not love. And so he says, I led them by the hand out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. In other words, it's almost as if he was admitting that he himself certainly had foreknowledge of every decision every human being would ever make. He knew who would choose and who would not. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. This is the new one, in other words. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That's a whole lot different than stone, amen? That's a whole lot different than a temple. Amen? That is very different than you need this humongous... Now think about it for a moment. While they were in the wilderness, they had this extremely complex tabernacle that they drug around in the wilderness by some accounts, took at least 40 people just to load it up, probably took 150 or so to carry the various component parts of it, probably weighed in the neighborhood of 50 or so tons, 
and it was drug around through the wilderness and set up in an exactly prescribed way, an exact location according to the path of the sun, east and west, had to be done meticulously. They drug it around for 40 years in the desert. They finally make it to the promised land. They build what was then the largest clear span building in the entire world. That was the temple. Solomon's temple was one of those buildings that were it to still stand like the Parthenon does in part today, it would have been larger and more grand. So he says, none of that stuff actually ever did it. That's why when people ask me, you know, do I have to, you know, does the church have to look like a church? The answer is no. Because the law no longer is inscribed simply in books. It's not on walls. It isn't because of the artistry in the chapel. It's not because of the stained glass. It isn't the gold-gilded altar. It's not the window dressings. It is none of those things. It's now in your heart. And you can worship God wherever you are and be just as effective and fruitful. That doesn't make the body of Christ invaluable. The body of Christ is still very valuable. But the body of Christ, quite frankly, gathers under trees every day all over the world. The body of Christ sits on riverbanks every day all over the world. The body of Christ meets in dingy basements and dank spaces all over the world. God's new covenant is not inscribed in buildings. It's inscribed in hearts. And I will be their God. And what's actually being said here is the completion of this is they'll actually be able to personally meet with me. I will be their God. I'll hang out with them. And they shall be my people. Hallelujah. Because under Judaism, not so much. That was not possible, in fact. When you look at the Old Testament and you look at what was done in the temple complex... Literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there were at least sin offerings being offered. Round the clock, there were sin offerings happening. And then once a year, the Day of Atonement. But there was something going on because of sin, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Aren't you glad that you're not involved in that kind of religious activity? People moan about going to church twice a week. Imagine, oh, you know, I'm going to go do my sin offering. You know, for me, I'd, that'd be a, I couldn't work. There's no way I could work. I'd have, I, I got to go do my sin offering right now. And then I'd be complaining about my sin offering and have to offer another sin offering for my complaining of my sin offering. And praise God, that is not it. It never was it. And it says that none of them shall teach his neighbor. And none his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. In other words, it no longer lies with man. God wants to talk to you personally, privately, publicly. He wants to convince you positionally, pragmatically. Name any P you want to name. God wants to speak to you directly now. Hallelujah. You don't need an intercessor of man's type. You already have one. It's the same one for all of us. He draws all of us near. For I shall 
for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Hallelujah. I will be merciful unto their unrighteousness. I, personal God, will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Hallelujah. You see, that wasn't the way it was in the Old Testament days. That was not the way it was under the Judaic law. God was not merciful. Matter of fact, he was known to be vengeful and filled with wrath at times. And if you were outside the temple, you were just plain dead. For I will be merciful unto their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. You see, God had never allowed that to be a reality under the Old Testament law, under the law of Judaism. He, in fact, did remember every last one of their sins. They were simply put away. He didn't hold them into account, but he definitely remembered them because they had not been completely forgiven. They'd simply been put away. And that's why verse 13 goes on to say, For in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. How awesome is that? The first one's obsolete. And now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so here, chapter 8, in this incredible short 13 verses, you know, probably most of us in here, maybe not all of us, but uh, some of us who are a little older, certainly, we can remember when car manufacturers changed body styles very regularly. And in fact, it was designed obsolescence. It was designed to make you want the newest, the latest, and greatest model. Now they put more technology in it to, to accomplish that. The cars used to be, you know, if you got a 65 Mustang or a 65 GTO or if you got pretty much anything from 1965, uh, it was a classic. It, it was, you know, a, a 66 Chevelle SS. You know, there were all these cars that were classics. But they only made them for just a couple of years in that body style, and it completely went away. And it made people hungry for that next new thing problem was is that particular year of 1965 they never really did manage to accomplish making uh, cars that were like that anymore you know you could say the same thing maybe about a 57 Chevy Bel Air or something you know there are just some classics but there were designed obsolescence in all of those things can I say to you that God designed obsolescence into the Old Testament law and into Judaism it was designed to make people hunger after the new model. The really new model. The latest and greatest model. The new covenant, ultimately. You see, Christ being the high priest of that, he basically summarizes this message and says, the old one couldn't get you all the way there. But boy, it was pretty nice, wasn't it? You ever notice, and I know some of you have had this experience, when you, you know, you get out of the house and your first car that you go and buy, you know, for mine it was a, actually when I was still living at home, it was a 1961 Dodge Lancer. And, and I remember that car, it was awesome, you know, it was just like it was my car. And, you know, it had slant six in it and push-button transmission on the dash. Looked actually like a radio, but it was really the transmission. I remember that car. 
But you know what? That car was not cool compared to a 1965 Mustang. And you pull up next to that 65 Mustang, and you're like, man, I am driving a piece of junk. It's like, why can't I have that? That is way more cool. But then you get the 65 Mustang, which, by the way, I did have a 65 Mustang. And then somebody pulls up in a 1975, you know, brand spanking new something else. You look at it and go, oh, my car's kind of the pits, and theirs is really nice. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Why? Because human nature cannot be satiated by things. There is no amount of you pleasing you that will ever get you to quit wanting new things, other things. So whatever it is that finalizes that in you has to be not of this world. Because I'll tell you right now, I, you know, give me a Lamborghini Gallardo. You know, I'm like, yeah, give me a new car. My son Austin and I, we sit there and look at his, you know, his road and track magazine. I'll have one of those. I'll have one of those. And I really like one of those. Oh, no, yeah, the, the Bugatti Veyron. You know, the only stock car that goes nearly 300 miles an hour. You're like, yeah, I want one of those. You see, everything about the law actually was obsolete from day one. It was part of the plan. It was designed by God to get you very hungry for the next thing. Just like cars do today. You go in there and you sit down and, oh, well, mine's got automatic climate control and power electric seat warmers and you know you just you, you, you there's just endless amounts of things and so it is with god he says i'm going to give them something that's really good when i give it to them matter of fact in as much as they could do it it would be perfect but they can't do it they won't do it so i'm going to make them desire something new and so the answer of course was always intended to point men to jesus it was never intended that you, you know, man, I just can't wait to get back to the law. I have quite frankly never understood why a person who is of Jewish origin or history who becomes saved, I can't imagine what draws them back to the religion of Judaism. The only thing I can think of is it must be very appealing to the flesh. It must be something that, that says, you know what, maybe you know, all that work is actually better than this grace thing. And so we begin to get a picture here that what once was available to virtually no one is now available to anyone who asks. To anyone who calls in the name of the Lord, that person shall be saved. So we've gone from religion to relationship. Every once in a while you get asked the question, I get asked the question, you know, where does Jesus really live? You know, when you, when you first go to Sunday school, I think most people get the impression that Jesus just lives in your heart. Which, to some degree, is partially true. But it's not actually his location of residence. He actually lives in heaven. He lives us in us spiritually in our hearts, the Holy Spirit in us. He lives spiritually there. But his physical presence, his resurrection body, is in heaven with God. Scripture is very clear. And he is there for some very specific reasons, and they're very good reasons. Because he's interceding for you every day. 
He's offering up prayers for you every day. He is mediating this new covenant every day. Satan comes and says, hey, you know, that Jeff guy, I mean, he's kind of a, he's kind of a dweeb. And, uh, you know, he was sinning today. And, you know, I was down there while I was walking around on the earth, going to and fro, seeing whom, seeing whom I might be able to devour. And I saw Jeff, and Jeff was doing this, 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 and this. And he did four of these. And Jesus says, no, that's okay. I paid for all of those in the next three billion times as well. Along with sufficient to wipe out all the rest of the sins of mankind for all eternity. He's mediating that new covenant. He's an advocate, Scripture declares. In other words, he's your attorney. I shared with this principle with you before. He is there in heaven. Satan comes with his attacks. He says, you know, well, we caught him with this, and here's the facts right here in the case. I mean, read this. And Jesus just goes, eh, and hucks it. He says, you can't bring a charge against my elect. You can't do it. So he is in heaven on your behalf right now, and Scripture declares he never sleeps, he never slumbers. So those things that you think of while you're asleep and you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I hope nobody heard me. You know, I hope I didn't say anything while I was sleeping. Jesus is there while you're sleeping. Man, his brain is a mess at night, but it's still forgiven. <laughs> Cleansed, erased, washed. Dwells with God in heaven. And of course, we accept the Lord into our heart, but that's a more of a metaphorical picture of what happens to us because it says this new covenant is inscribed in our heart. It's where it takes place. It's where those things happen. Verse 2, it says there, and he ministers, and I love the, the New Living Translation, it says, in the sacred tent, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. He worships in a human body in the heaven of heavens, in the heavenly you see, since he left this earth, he the only man-made thing, and I, I love this, the only man-made thing in heaven is going to be the scars on Jesus' hands and feet. That's it. Everything else made in heaven for heaven. But those things were made by man. You're going to get there and you're going to see Jesus in his resurrection body. Because you remember what, after he was raised from the dead, you remember what Thomas said? Hey, check this out. Lifts up his tunic. See the wound? So we know it's still there. But boy, is it different than the Old Testament priests that went in in all of their finery. You're going to get to, to meet with the Jesus who died on Calvary's cross. And you're going to know. You see, before... It was only the high priest that could enter the holy place. Now you can enter the holy place. I can enter the holy place. That's why it's a better covenant. It says there in verse 3 that every high priest offered up both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. That was their job. That was the high priest's job, was to offer gifts and sacrifices. Basically, they had to keep God happy. It's like, okay, it was a lot of work. 
Can you imagine being a high priest? I mean, how much sinning could the whole tribe of Israel do? You know, all 12 tribes. They're out there sinning it up. The high priests are like, man, we're working our fingers to the bone over this sin stuff. It was tough. It was hard work. It's no longer hard work. It was hard for Christ. It's free to you. That free gift of salvation that you received when you said yes to Jesus. You don't earn it yourself. You're not doing anything to warrant it yourself. And you don't need to have anybody else earn it either. That's why when people come to me and they say, they, well, will you, pray, will you pray for my sins to be removed? You pray for your sins to be removed. I've got other things to do. I need to pray for my own to be removed. By grace, you can enter in. By the way, I'm happy to pray with you, but the, the bottom line is you can do it as well as I can. You don't need a priest. Because you have Jesus instead as your high priest in heaven. You can go direct to the source. You know, that's the reason all these big box stores do the way that, you know, make the money that they do. You're buying direct from the manufacturer. Now you can get rid of your sin direct with the manufacturer of the goodness, not the sin. You can just go straight to the source that can forgive you. You don't need to go over to the high priest and check in at the gate and go, well, I think I've got enough here. I mean, the, the entire land of Canaan would have been devoid of animals if I'd have lived then. It's like, that herd of sheep, it's dead. See those goats over there? Yeah, all 850 of them, they're mine. Yeah. Now you can simply go for the asking and say, Lord, I blew it. I fell short of, the, of your glory, God, and I, I'm sorry. And I want you to cleanse me from my unrighteousness. And I want you to forgive me. I'm asking you, God. And you don't have to bring anything anymore. He just wants you. He just wants me. He loves you so much. That's all he cares about is you. That's why when people say, well, you know, I need to do this and do that or bring this or bring that or whatever. God only wants you. He doesn't need your stuff. It already belongs to him. hate to tell you. Well, you need to give God something. He already owns it. Scripture declares that the gold and silver in every mine, the sheep and cattle on a thousand hill, the earth and the fullness of it is the Lord's. It's not yours anyway. So even though you happen to have the title to that car, the car is God's. The house, God's. The money, God's. The clothes, God's. The food, God's. He doesn't need it. He already has it. But what he only has if you let him is you. He's given you free will. And that's what he wants more than anything else. That's why it was scribbled on our hearts, so to speak, and no longer in tablets of stone. Verse 4, it says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. In other words, if it were simply about Jesus being a priest of a different order, then he'd have to somehow obliterate the new and, and make the new covenant while the old still existed. And so I love the way the, the Lord finished all this off, because it would only be about 23 years later, and Titus, the Roman general, would come to Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And from that point on, 
You couldn't offer sacrifices, and you haven't been able to for 2,000 years, basically. Couldn't do it. He said, not only am I going to make it obsolete, I'm going to take away the possibility that you'd ever even think about doing it. And so he removes the temple from its place. In verse 5 it says, And they serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. It was believed by the Jewish people that there were two sanctuaries. One was on earth, and one was in heaven, and the Lord was in both simultaneously. That was basic Jewish theology. And so God existed in both places. He existed in heaven in the tabernacle, and he existed on earth in the tabernacle, and only in those two places. They believed in his omniscience and omnipotence and all of those kind of things, but they basically believed he dwelt between those two places. And so this was a very different type of a sanctuary because it was no longer a place. It was no longer something that, in essence, the Jewish people had kind of sole ownership of. I don't know if you ever thought about this or not. It was kind of a bummer to be a Gentile at that time, amen? Because realistically, you couldn't get close to God. It was only the Jewish people that could get close to God. They actually had, like, copyright law on it. You know, it's like, no, he's ours. Yahweh of hosts is ours. He's right over there. He's in the tabernacle. See that pillar of fire, the cloud? That's him. And you're not one of us. And so God says, well, that's not going to work for very long. And so he saved no one by it. Because you know what? That is exactly what they told the Gentiles. You know what the average Jew prayed during the time of Jesus when he got up in the morning? Thank God I was not born a Gentile. That literally was their prayer. Or a woman. That's what a man prayed. Women didn't pray that. Thank God I was not born a Gentile or a woman. That's what a Jewish man would pray. Because to be born outside of Judaism was to be born outside of God. You couldn't get close. You had to convert somehow and be accepted in. But if you were a Greek, forget it. Roman, forget it. Yeah, for sure, if you were a Babylonian or a Mede or a you know, Persian, whatever, you were just toast. It was over for you. And this is why Moses warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see that you make it according to the pattern I show, that was shown to him on the mountain. It had to be perfect. Aren't you glad you don't have to be perfect anymore? Amen. Because the way it was then and the way it is now, back then very few people, if any, were really right before the Lord. Now all who call upon the name of the Lord can be right with the Lord. Now anybody who names the name of Christ can be cleansed from sin. So it was following the pattern. And it was not a building for a tent, but it was a building for lives. That's the new covenant. The new covenant is lives built on Christ. Character, the virtues, the aspirations, the things that Jesus did while he was here on this earth. And that type of care cares for people. That's why, and I want to be really careful here. It is not a bad thing to care about whales and dolphins and turtles and hummingbirds or whatever. Okay? It is not a bad thing at all. It's God's creation. They're, they're his wonderful creatures. That's, that's nice. But they don't have souls. 
And there is no comparison between a dolphin and a person. There is no comparison between a whale and a person. There is not going to be one saved whale in heaven. You're not going to get there and, well, I sure wish I'd have you know, shared the plan of salvation with those baboons because now they're all going to burn in hell. We are of a different kind. We have been endued by the Creator God with His likeness, and we are the only creatures on the entire earth who have that. Doesn't mean we abuse, misuse, you shouldn't be out hacking on your trees or blowing birds out of the air as far as I'm concerned. Creation is there for your enjoyment. If you love killing them and eating them, great. But don't kill them just to kill them. But the bottom line is, they're not you. And they never will be you. And so this whole concept of, of living for Christ applies to people. It's what God cares about is us. Out of this whole universe, that's what He cares about. He's not out there, you know, boy, I hope Pluto, you know, it's awful dark out there. God flung the stars into space to give us something to stare at at night, okay? It's like a big fireworks show. It's not so we can go, E.T. phone home. The New Covenant's about people. It's not about religion. It's not about buildings. It's not about what you do or even how you do it. It's about who you know. You see, the earthly sanctuary was meant to reflect, however imperfectly, the heavenly tabernacle, so we would want the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly one. That's why when, when I go to the Sierras and I'm wandering around, I reflect on the heavenly, heavenly tabernacle. I look up at the stars at night and I go, God, you're awesome. I don't go, wow, I wonder how many planets up there have life. I just don't think those things. I think, God, out of all these rocks in space, you chose this one to put Jesus on. You chose this one to uniquely endue with the ability to sustain life. You see that religion that everyone seeks can have all kinds of components if it's not the relationship you're seeking. That's why when you look at the diversity of world religions, it's pretty kooky. You happen to be a Hindu, you could have two and a half, three thousand different gods. There's a god for everything. There's a god for fleas. No joke. There is a God for fleas. Verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received as superior to theirs, is as superior to theirs, as it is of the covenant of which he is mediator, superior to the old one. In other words, there is no comparison. There's nothing to compare it to. Promises of better. That's what it says here in verse 6. Completely replace the Old Testament ministry of the, the priests. Accomplished what the Old Testament could not do. And the covenant of itself. And think about the covenant for a second because it's really an interesting concept. <clears throat> the covenant always takes at least two people. 
You cannot have a covenant without at least two people. And in this case, it's God and us. It's always been God and mankind. But in the context of the covenants being described here, whenever one party didn't keep their part, the other party was released from their part. That's the way a covenant worked. So if you and I put together a covenant, and I say, okay, at 8.30, the service is over, and you have to leave the building, and if you don't leave the building, you've got to give me $10 million. Okay? That was a covenant between two people. If you did not keep your part, I'm freed from mine and you're freed from yours. In this case, in the new covenant, guess who got both parts? Because under the old covenant, guess what man didn't do? Man didn't keep his part, right? So the covenant itself was actually null and void from the get-go. Wasn't that it was a bad covenant. Wasn't that God didn't keep his part, but because mankind didn't keep theirs, God didn't have to provide salvation for anybody under the Old Testament covenant. And he didn't. That's why when I tell you there won't be a single person in heaven who didn't believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not one, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were waiting for that new covenant. They waited in faith. They waited in the abuso. They awaited in the place of the dead until Jesus was raised from the dead. And when the Messiah came, they said, Oy vey, it's Jesus, the Messiah. I get it now. I didn't quite get it then, but I get it now. And so the, the ministry of Jesus provided us a way to keep both parts of the covenant without the keeping being on you. You see, the keeping's no longer on you. You simply have to receive the one who kept it. God makes the covenant. He says, if you will believe and receive, I will save you based on the merits of Christ, not your own merits. So both parts of the new covenant lie with God. You simply accept the completed covenant. So both parts are in God's hand. The agreement and how to keep it are from God, and you receive both parts of the new covenant by grace and through faith, not because you did anything. That's why when somebody says, well, you know, this whole grace thing, I think you take it a little too far. It's the only way to be saved. Because if there's any way to mess it up, we'll do it. We're good at that. Can you imagine if there was actually even one criteria to get into heaven? Think about it for a second. The criteria is you have to like broccoli. Yeah, there are people right here in this room going to die. You're going to perish eternally. That's not that hard. You would think of eternity light on it. Well, I like broccoli. But it won't happen. You name it. You have to draw a one-inch long straight line with a pen. I know people that can't, they can't even put the pen on the paper. You've seen my son's handwriting. You, no, it's not going to happen. He's never going to heaven if he has to draw a one-inch line, one-inch long straight line on a piece of paper. It isn't going to happen. I don't care what you do. Go 2.3 nanoseconds without thinking something wrong. The moment I start to think about thinking something, I'd think something wrong. It'd be instantaneous. There's no conditions you could place on humankind that would allow everyone to be saved except grace through faith. The faith is a free gift. 
The grace comes totally from God's merit and His favor. It's unmerited and unwarranted by you. He simply gives it to you as, a, as if it were a gift, which it is, and thereby both parts of the covenant are kept by God. You just get to receive the completed covenant. Hallelujah. Otherwise, there are people that couldn't go. But everybody can go under those circumstances. That's why the new covenant is one that's in here, not on there. It's not something you keep. It's not something you do. It's something you receive. Very different. Notice what I said. It's something you receive. It will change you, and you'll live a different life, and there's all kinds of things that will happen to you, but those things are a result of you receiving the gift. They're not something you do because you have to if you receive the gift. They're something you do because they're part of your new nature you got with the gift. Hallelujah. That's why it's called a better promise here. Because it's a better life. It's a life that you now live in Him that you now live. It's not that old way of life. It's a new way of life. Your mission is completely different. You can be a plumber or a plastic surgeon for Jesus. Amen? You can be a pruner of fine shrubberies. for You can be anything. And be well-pleasing to the Lord. You can, you can have any type of job while you're on this earth. All of those things are inconsequential to the fact that you're a child of God. God will simply use those things for His glory. You don't have to become like a certain person or a certain group of people. You don't have to be white, Anglo-Saxon, or Protestant. You can be any color on earth. You can come from any geographic region on earth. You can have little or no brains. Uh, if you receive by grace through faith the engrafted Word of God, which results in you understanding the plan of salvation, you're saved. It's done. For if, verse 7 says, the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. Amen. But because it was with you, because you had a part to keep in that old covenant... You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Could never work out. You'd get kind of close, but you couldn't get all the way there. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Because of my faults, your faults. Animal blood couldn't do it. Sacrifices couldn't do it. You ever wondered why John the Baptist looked at Jesus when he came to the River Jordan to be baptized and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not puts away, not hides, takes away the sin of the world. Very specific statement he made. He says, the Lamb of God, he's going to offer himself up for us. That was different than the Old Testament priests. You bring your own animals, we'll kill it for you, barbecue it. We'll go in and offer up some prayers. You'll be okay. God won't fry you instantaneously, but we're just writing it down in the book, and he'll deal with it later. Jesus took away the sins of the world. We don't have to struggle with guilt. We don't have to struggle with those past sins. We don't have to struggle with unforgiveness or bitterness or anything. 
that mankind is prone to struggle with because he takes away the sins of the world. It says here in this passage that he does not remember them. And I want to draw your attention to something because it says that they will be these things will be in your heart and it, and it will result in, in this New Testament set of provisions that are going to happen to you. When we say God doesn't remember things, you have to also at the same time acknowledge the fact that he's omniscient and omnipotent and he absolutely can remember them. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. From God's perspective, he will never remember them because they're covered. They're erased by the blood of the Lamb. They're still there because their knowledge, he certainly could remember them, but he will never remember them. That's why it says that he forgot them. From our perspective, God's forgotten them. He won't remember them anymore. You don't have to worry about them dredging up a whole, well, you know, you were okay until last week. You know, it just kind of threw me over the top, and I, you know, got out the book, and, oh, well, there they are. That volume's hidden. It's covered over with the blood of the Lamb. There are four things that we can close with that are provided by this new covenant. Notice it says, I will put my laws in their heart, their minds. It's an inward change. Religion is outward. Relationship is inward. It's now about the heart. It's not about the hands and it's not about the head. We hear the word of God with our heads. We acknowledge it with our minds. But it moves from there down to your heart. And your heart is different in that it is the seat of your soul, your emotion. Those two things combine together to where you receive it by faith. It's an inward change. That inward change then changes the outside. It's not the other way around. No amount of cleaning up the outside will make the inside okay. The inside gets cleaned up. The outside won't matter. God will take care of that. Second thing. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's now an intimate relationship. It's not a long-distance relationship. It's no longer, my people stay over there. It's my people come over here. It's not, well, you can be in the courtyard. Maybe some of you can even come into the holy place, but none of you can come into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. You can all come into the Holy of Holies. You can have an intimate relationship with God. The third thing. There in verse 11. Everyone from the least to the greatest will know me. It provides a relationship for anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. It used to be a very exclusive set of people that were as right as you could be with God. They were Jewish by birth, most of them. They were, by religion, converted into Judaism. But there wasn't anybody else. Now it's all who will call. It's anyone who will come. And so the new covenant provides from the greatest to the least. And finally found in verse 12, and it's probably the most spectacular part of this new covenant, for I will forgive their wickedness 
and will remember their sins no more. The new covenant actually provides forgiveness of sin. The old covenant didn't. It temporarily put it away. You can read Exodus 34 or Micah chapter 7. They had experienced, the Jewish people, a a conditional type of putting away of their sins. Uh, If you will, for a time, they were dealt with by the things that were done in the temple. But they were never forgiven. They couldn't be forgiven. They weren't erased. But under Christ, sin's impact, the penalty of it, is completely and totally overcome forever and ever. It's sufficient for all time. Once you receive it, believe it, those things bring about true and complete righteousness. That is unfathomable to someone who is religious. That's why when you talk to Muslims, they don't believe in salvation, period. There is no such thing as salvation in Islam. You're just simply awaiting a time of judgment and justice, and hopefully Allah will view your good works, and he'll see those things as being greater than your bad, and he'll assign you to some form of paradise. But there is no guarantee, not for anyone, no one. The same is true for Catholicism. No one knows when they take their last breath on this earth how long they're spending in purgatory or whether God is going to finally accept them. In fact, you can go to purgatory for a very long time and maybe you don't quite make it. Matter of fact, the last pope was asked if he thought he was going to heaven and he, I quote, said, I hope so. I don't hope so, I know so. I'm going to heaven, not because of me. Because of the blood of Christ. I'll take the new covenant. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll take Christ doing for me what I cannot do for myself. I um, will be eternally grateful. And there is no comparison really between the old and the new. Except that the new didn't work. If without Jesus. If there's no Jesus. There's no new covenant. Because he had to die for the sins of the world. And once he died... It was sufficient for everybody. Receive it. Believe it. Trust Him. Walk in that new covenant. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You, Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the babe in the manger, the virgin-born Son of Mary, the child that was born, the Son that was given, the Wonderful, the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Lord, you, Jesus, did for us what we could not do for ourselves in the New Covenant. We receive it. We believe it. We praise you. We thank you. We bless you. We thank you that we are now forgiven and cleansed, and you remember not our iniquities anymore. Lord, thank you they've been put away permanently. You'll never dredge them up. We don't need to walk in guilt or unforgiveness. We can have instant access to God the Father through Jesus the Son. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time tonight in your word. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.